The following audio is from the Grove Church Snohomish campus. For more information about our church or to listen to previous sermons, check out our website at grove.church. Your statement about Lay's Retreat really hit home for me because it's, you know, how many of you guys are living the kind of single dad slash bachelor life this weekend? It's been interesting. Um, I don't know if this makes you lose respect for me, but this will actually be the first time I speak in front of you when my wife did not dress me. So hopefully I did okay. She told me I can't wear um, blue jeans and a blue shirt, so I went black jeans, and I figured that would, you know, I figured, thank thank you, you get it, you get it. Uh, But no, today is going to be a really fun day. Um, I'm really excited for this message. It's going to be a little bit uh, practical and also a little bit convicting, Um, and when I say convicting, I mean uh, convicting for me and convicting for all of us probably, but in in a good way, and we'll talk about that here in a second. And I love, uh, today I think is really special, Um, obviously with so many people being gone at the women's retreat, it gives us the opportunity uh, to worship together uh, with everyone, so not just adults, uh, but kids as well. And so a couple things I wanted to say before we jumped in that, uh, for all my kids in the room, uh, I think it's very important to get out of the way that I'm not just talking to adults today. Uh, the Bible is for all of us, and I believe that you are all capable of understanding things. And so uh, as we, as I'm speaking today, uh, make sure to listen and make sure that we all can learn together uh, more about the importance of loving our neighbor. Uh, and for adults in the room, uh, we fully understood what we were getting into when we had everyone come into the one room. So uh, kids are squeamish or squirmish, squirm. They squirm. We get it, basically, is what I'm trying to say, right? So there's, there's a lot of grace today for that sort of thing. So don't worry about freaking out. It's all going to be awesome. Um, it's going it's to be a great day. I'm excited. So we're continuing our series called How to Neighbor. Uh, the last couple weeks, we've been talking about really the idea of why it's important to love our neighbors, kind of the whole overarching idea of it. And then this week and next week are going to be more practical messages, um, kind of giving us the how, if you will. And so for this week, we're going to talk a little bit about um, why it's important to really love the people geographically closest to us and the different kinds of commands of God. And we're also going to go through uh, this fun chart that you got with you on the way in. So save that. It's coming up towards the end of the message. Don't worry. Um, But to recap a little bit, because I do think it's important to talk about um, everything that we've been talking about in this series. So Part one, we went through the story of the Good Samaritan. If you weren't here, the basic layout of the story is this. Jesus is telling the story of a man. Uh, He is on his way to Jericho. He's an Israelite. On his way there, he gets set upon is the word in the Bible, which we don't use that phrase often enough, but he gets set upon by robbers. Um, He's left for dead. And what we see is a priest comes by. He wants to help him, but he realizes, well, it's going to make me unclean. This is really inconvenient. Maybe it's a trap, all these different things. So the priest moves on. Um, And then eventually a Levite comes, and he looks at it, kind of thinks through the same thing. Maybe it's a trap. It's going to make me unclean. I don't really want to do this. And he moves on. And then we get a Samaritan who comes in, and the Samaritan actually ends up being the one who helps this man. And I think I've said this every time I've spoken here because it's one of my great passions when it comes to teaching, but one of the big mistakes that we make when we read the Bible is we don't put ourselves into the situations of the people that we're reading about. We kind of just casually gloss over it without actually taking the time to really think about it. And what's happening in the story of the Good Samaritan that oftentimes we we don't talk about is the fact that the Samaritan is helping out a man who he understands most likely hates him. And when I was reading up on the differences between really the Jewish faith and the Samaritan faith and the kind of things that were going on there, uh, one of the helpful illustrations I got was 
the differences between Protestants and Catholics during the Reformation, um, which if you've read up on that is a really helpful illustration, but I'm guessing a lot of us have it. And so I think um, a less perfect but really helpful illustration for our context would be, imagine if this story takes place in the 1850s and the Samaritan is a freed slave and he is helping a rich white slave owner in the South. That kind of gives you an idea of what's going on, right? The, the Jewish man, most likely, and the Samaritan is fully aware of this, uh, hates him because of his, his ethnicity and because of his faith. That's what's going on. And yet the story shows us that the Samaritan chooses to love that man anyway. Fast forward to part two. We talked about Jonah. And to give a quick, a quick recap of Jonah, uh, Jonah was a prophet. Ooh, ooh. And so God uh, commands, if you've seen VeggieTales, you know what I'm talking about there. But God commands him to go to Nineveh and to preach about basically, listen, there's coming destruction. You need to repent. You need to turn around. Uh, Jonah refuses. He runs away to Tarshish through, Tarshish, through a big uh, series of events, which also involves a great fish. So, I mean, it's a really good story. Uh, he ends up going to Nineveh. He preaches uh, about God's coming judgment, about the need for repentance. And an incredible thing happens. The people of Nineveh actually repent. They actually turn around. They, uh, it says they put on sackcloth and ashes. They fast. They pray. And basically, they turn towards God in that moment. And the heart of Jonah is revealed because... He leaves the city, and it says that he basically camps out on the hill uh, with the full intent of like, okay, God, I did what you wanted. I preached. Now burn him. And he just chills up on the hill. All these different things happen. And when we read the story, we, we rightfully point to the fact that Jonah is being incredibly sinful in that moment. And in fact, one of the most um, interesting passages of the Bible is when Jonah is complaining to God, and, he's, and God's basically revealing, I'm not going to burn the city. And Jonah's like, I knew it. I knew you were loving and merciful and steadfast, and that's why I didn't want... Like, Jonah's complaining about the love and the mercy of God, right? Nowhere else in the Bible do we see any passage like that except in Jonah. It's incredible. And what is going on there is we're supposed to look at that story and see the fact that Jonah's heart is completely wrong. But again... We need to put ourselves into the situation of Jonah. Because I think a lot of times we just think of the Ninevites as like they're a foreign people. That's all they are. Um, Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And what's happening during that time is the Assyrians are invading Israel. They're burning cities. They're killing people. This isn't just um, a foreign power that Jonah is going to minister to. And in fact, again, not a perfect example. Um, but it would be very akin to, say, um, a Christian in the Middle East going and preaching into the heart of ISIS-controlled territory. And so when we look at it through that lens, it makes sense that Jonah was very afraid to go there. There's a lot of fears motivating his decision to not want to go away. Not just hatred of the Ninevites, but also fear of what's going to happen to him. He runs into it. And he's mad at God for showing mercy. But the point I want us to take out of that story for, um, for today is this. Not just the fact that we should always be willing to show mercy to everyone. But the fact that God commanded Moses, not Moses, God commanded Jonah to preach and to show mercy to a people group who were killing his people. Objectively, the Ninevites were the enemies of Israel. And God calls Jonah to go and he calls him to preach about redemption. It's really an incredible story. And so fast forward to today, the thing I want to talk about is really the mission that God has given us. And I think that um, I'm going to land today, and it's a passage called the Great Commission. It's a very famous passage. A lot of us probably know it. And 
to give uh, a little bit of context of what's going on. Jesus at this point, so it's in the book of Matthew, uh, he has died, he's risen again, and he's actually been with his disciples for a few months now. And so I think it's uh, a, a period of uh, a quite, a, quite a bit of time. He's calling them back. There's an incredible passage where Jesus forgives Peter for betraying him. Uh, there's the doubting Thomas thing that happens at that point. There's a lot of different things that are happening. Jesus is really rounding up his disciples and he's preparing them for ministry. And I think we rightfully put a lot of weight on people's last words. Um, all the time when you hear about uh, someone dying, you, they talk about their last words. In fact, I think it was when um, uh, President Bush Sr. died, I read that his last words were, I love you, to one of his kids, and that was the last thing that he spoke. We put a lot of weight onto those things, and when people know that their time is drawing near, they, they also put a lot of weight in what's going on. And so in a sense, these are Jesus' last words. Not that Jesus dies, but right after he says these things, he goes back to heaven. So as far as like physically being present, these are the last things that Jesus says to his disciples. And he says this in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so what Jesus is getting at here is that the gospel was not meant to stay where it started. And thank God for that, because we're a long way away from Jerusalem, right? We're about as far away as you can get before you start getting closer. And he's preparing his disciples for this idea that just hearing about the gospel, just hearing about redemption is not enough, but we're actually commanded by God to go. Or in other words, God gives them a mission. And it's an important thing for us to keep in mind because what's the gospel? What is the thing that Jesus is talking about? When he says go and make disciples, he's not saying go and make friends. He's saying go and share about this news and help people to understand it. And, and the news is this, that there's an all-powerful, all-loving God who loves us to our core. And because of the perfect life that Jesus lived and dying the death that we deserve to die, we can now have relationship with him. What that means is that we find our purpose in how we relate to God. We find our forgiveness in the fact that God has forgiven us. We find all of our meaning in who God is. Or in other words, we are no longer slaves to sin, even though we have continuously betrayed God. Or in other words, we have fallen short of the mark that he has for us. We can find forgiveness and we can find redemption in the work of Jesus. And if that news is true, if what I just said is true, it is the greatest news that has ever been spoken in any of our lives. And if we treated it like it was true, we would not be able to keep it to ourselves. But so often, when it comes to practice, we don't treat it that way. We have these grand visions of witnessing to large groups of people or leading that friend of faith or defending the faith, all these different things. And those aren't bad dreams, but I think oftentimes we have those dreams and we have those visions, and yet we find it difficult to reach out to the people that God has placed geographically right next to us. We go on mission trips, we go on all these different things, we go to the world, if you will, um, but we're not willing to go next door. 
And there's, there's a story in the Old Testament I want to talk about, and this might sound like kind of a funny, um, a funny parallel to draw, but, but stick with me because I think it actually works pretty well. In this story, we're going to rewind all the way back to Moses. And what's happening is the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt for about 400 years. Uh, They're very oppressed, and then God eventually raises up Moses and his brother Aaron, and, and through them, uh, God delivers the people of Israel. And so they're in Egypt, and the ten plagues happen, which are incredible things. Uh, they eventually come out of Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. They go into the wilderness. There's a period of wandering. And this passage is right before they're supposed to go into the promised land. And so what's happening is God saying, come out of Egypt. I'm going to lead you through the wilderness. And then there is a land that I have set aside for you that you're going to take hold of. And this is where your people can live. This is where your people can dwell. The promised land, or the land that was promised by God. And so Moses decides that by the command of God, he's going to send in spies. And in Numbers chapter 13, 1 through 3, it says this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, everyone a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, and all of the men who, and all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. I learned how to mute my own mic, so that was, see, I'm getting better. What's happening in this moment is Moses wants to spy out the land before the people go um, and conquer it. And I don't know why my mind goes here, but one of my favorite movies is uh, Ocean's Eleven. And if you watch it, like before they rob the casino, like half the movie is them just standing around in the casino. And they're learning about, you know, where people are going to be at different times, where the guards are going to be at different times. And that's essentially what Moses is asking these guys to do. He wants them to go. I want to know where the roads are. I want to know what cities are the big fortified cities. How do their guards look? How tall are their walls? How thick are their walls? All these different things, right? And the spies are not just normal guys. It says that they are all leaders of the tribes of Israel. So theoretically, at least, these men are the best of the best. And they're all accepting this mission. They know this is the land that God has promised us. We're on the doorstep of taking hold of the land that God has given to us. And now we're going to go and we're going to hatch a plan. We're going to figure out exactly what we need to know so that we can fulfill the commands of God. So they stay in there for 40 days, and when they come back, this is what happens in uh, verses 25 through 33. It says this, At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Go ahead and stop here for a second. What's happening here is they go into the land, and God says, this land is prosperous. This land is incredible. And they come to the people of Israel, and they're like, God was not lying. It flows with milk and honey, which to us today, who cares back then, big deal. Milk and honey was awesome. Honey was a big sweetener, right? So they're saying this land is incredible. Here's its fruit. They bring back examples of the fruit of the land. And essentially what they're saying is this land is everything that God said it would be and more. And the people of Israel get excited. And then this happens in verse 28. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. But Caleb, who is one of the spies, 
quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him, so the other spies said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land and said that they had spied it out, saying, This land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so it seemed to them. And what I think is so tragic about this passage is literally the people of Israel are this close to taking what God has for them. All they have to do is reach out and go. They're on the doorstep. God led them there, and yet they're afraid. And again, if we put ourselves into the situations of these people, right, this generation has seen frogs come out of the Nile and infest the land of Egypt. They've seen it hail. They've seen the sun blotted out. They've seen the firstborn of every Egyptian die. They have seen the sea open up and they've walked through on dry land and then watched the sea collapse on all of their enemies. And they've been led from the Red Sea to this point by a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. They've had bread fall down from heaven. They have seen God flex his power in unimaginable ways and then they get led to the doorstep of taking what God has promised to them and they say, oh, we can't do that. It's so interesting to look at the lives of these people and oftentimes we can look back and we can say, what cowards. They've seen all of these incredible things and yet they don't have the faith that God can just punch it in from the five-yard line, right? They don't have faith that God can get this done. And yet, that's exactly what we do. God had given them a mission. And he brought them on the precipice of fulfilling that mission. And when they were given the opportunity, they instead were afraid. And God has given us a mission, right? Go into all the world and make disciples is not a passive thing. It's a command of God that we are not supposed to just let our faith terminate with us. We're supposed to share it. We're supposed to show the greatest news that has ever happened. And yet, when God puts people in our lives directly next to us, much like the people of Israel, we're afraid. And again, I'm, I'm, being, I'm being serious right now. I am preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to everyone. We're not supposed to be afraid of these things. And what's interesting about this idea of fear is if we fast forward to Joshua, and so in, in the Bible what happens is um, God punishes that generation of people, and so they wander in the wilderness for an extended period of time until that whole generation basically dies, except for Caleb, who is the spy that we talked about, and then Joshua, who's the one that God um, appointed to lead the people after Moses. And so the book of Joshua is very much concerned with the conquest of this land. And in chapter 2, verse 9 There's spies that get sent in again. So Joshua does the same thing as Moses. He sends spies in, this time to the city of Jericho. He wants to see what the fortifications are. Uh, Through a series of events, the spies end up having to be on the run. They have to hide, and they're hid by a woman named Rahab who lives in the city, and she says this to them in verse 9. I know that the Lord has given you the land, 
and that, you, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, who you devoted to destruction. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And what I think is so interesting is that when the people of Israel go and they see the Canaanites, they're afraid, right? And then a generation later, they come in and they realize that the, the people who they're afraid of are just as afraid of them. And Rahab actually says, like, no, we heard about the, uh, the sea-splitting thing, like, that sounds pretty powerful. Like, it seems like the God that is sending you on this mission has a way of getting things done, and the, and the people were afraid. Now, obviously, this isn't a perfect analogy because the mission that God had given Israel was to, like, go into their neighbor's land and uh, destroy cities and occupy it, which is not the mission God has given us, so don't do that. But it, it translates really well in this idea that God has given us a mission— and that even though we're afraid of fulfilling it in certain points, oftentimes the other people are just as afraid to talk to us. Like, it's interesting. We live in a really antisocial culture. Um, and it's also very, it's very distrusting. Like, I remember, um, and this isn't like all that long ago, but when I was a kid, like, I could, you know, just take my bike and go, right? And my parents were pretty trusting of the area that we lived in. It was all good. And now, like, everything I hear is like, well, you'd never, ever do that. Um, when we're, we're automatically distrusted of strangers, and it's probably something that's been raised into us from when, we're, from when we were young. We don't actually make an effort to get to know the people that God has placed geographically right next to us. And so here's what I want to do today, and this is where the, the practicality of today comes in. A lot of this series that we're doing, uh, How to Neighbor, is based off of a book called The Art of Neighboring uh, by Jay Pathan and Dave Runyon. Um, and if you haven't read the book, I would really encourage you to pick it up. It's really cheap. Um, it's on Amazon. It's a great read, very easy read. But really what they're talking about is the idea of fulfilling the Great Commission with the people who are closest to us just in terms of space. So not necessarily friends or family, but just how do we love our neighbors? How do we show the love of God to our neighbors? And one of the interesting things that they talk about is this chart. And they call it the chart of shame, which is kind of a funny name. Uh, but they go around, and we're actually all going to do it today. It's going to be really fun. They travel to different churches, and they have pastors, and they have leaders, and they have, um, even in some cases, like the whole church, they walk them through these different things. And what this chart is about, and we can throw it up on the screen here really quick so everyone can see it. <clears throat> if this middle space is our house or our apartment, wherever we're living, who are the eight people who are geographically closest to us? And then with those eight people, and when I say people, I mean, you know, a household, right? So a family. Can we name three pieces of information about them? So in column A, when we're all going to fill this out, what we're going to try and do is can you put down the names of your neighbors? First names are great. Last names, I mean, I'm not giving out points, but you get bonus points so for, for whatever that's worth. Uh, in column B, so column A, we're going to put names. In column B, we're going to put down just information that we could have learned by having a conversation. So not like, he has a yellow truck, but like something you would actually have to like 
learn about them when you're talking. So for instance, uh, what do they do for a living? How long have they lived here? How old are they? How many kids? They, like, you know, I mean, things like that where you would actually have to learn some type of passing information. And then, if, oh, pass, I like the way you're thinking, Eli. If you don't have one of these, raise your hand and we'll get one to you right away. So if you didn't get one when you walked in, we'll go ahead and do that. Uh, and then finally, in column C, we're going to put down deeper information that you would have to learn from actually having a relationship with them. So not just passing information that you can learn from anything, but say, you know, not just where do they work, but, you know, where do they one day, what do they one day hope to do? Like, what's their dream of accomplishing these things? What are their dreams of where do they want to retire? Um, what are some of their hopes? What are some of their fears? You know, things that you would learn about someone from actually having a relationship with them. So like I said, if you don't have one, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. Everyone's going to fill it out. I'm also going to fill it out, so don't worry. We're all going to do this together. And right now, everyone, everyone clear? Just to repeat really quick before we go back into it. Column A, we're doing names. Column B, we're doing information that you would learn from having a conversation. And column C, deeper information that you would learn from having a relationship with them. Let's take a few minutes starting now to fill it out. Okay, so how'd everyone do? It's called the, uh, it's not called the Char of Shame for nothing. So uh, to give you an idea, because I don't think it's fair for me to have everyone fill it out and then not to share what's going on with me. So here's my chart. Uh, if we're going to talk about the way my apartment building is laid out, there's kind of six apartments right here that I live in, and then we can take the next strip of apartments, three. That would get me to eight, because I'm one of the six. So to give you an idea of uh, how I did, as far as the columns go, I can name uh, three of my eight neighbors. Uh, two of them, I don't think it counts because they're actually some of our best friends and we were friends way before they moved into the building. So I know everything about them. So uh, if we don't want to cheat, I can name one out of six of my neighbors. Uh, the reason I know their names is because we helped them move in. And so I'm pretty sure her name is Carol. I forgot her husband's name. So I got, I got that going for me. Um, and I know where they moved from because, because we helped them move and that came up during the conversations, right? Um, and we haven't really spoken since. So that's kind, of, that's kind of where I'm at. Again, when I said uh, convicting, I'm not up here saying that I rock at this and you need to catch up. I'm saying we can, we can all do better. So that's kind of what's going on here. Uh, and to give you an idea, just to kind of help you feel a little bit better, these guys have gone through, they've done trainings at a bunch of churches, and a lot of times they do it not just with, um, you know, congregations, but also with pastors, with leaders, all these different things. And they said that with all of their data they've collected, about 10% of people can name eight of their neighbors. So I don't know if that's actually how it, I'm not going to make everyone raise their hands, but I would guess it's probably about what it comes into the room. About 10% of people can name the eight closest people who live to them. About 3% of people can name just a fact about their neighbors that they would have had from a conversation. About 3%. And then less than 1% can name deep information about their neighbors. Or in other words, something that they would have learned from having a relationship. And I think, I think for us today, that's a really sad realization and I want to be careful that we don't get caught off of track. I don't want this to be a convicting message. I really hope that this can be an inspiring message to kind of, um, like we talked about a while ago, um, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is not about condemnation. It's really about revealing to us an area where we can start to do better. And I think that this is definitely an area 
where so many of us can start to do better. But also, this, this isn't just about making better neighborhoods, which, I mean, that's great, right? Helping other people is great. Having relationship with people is great. Having lawn parties, all these different things. Those are all great things and their side effects. But, but really what this is about is the fact that we here in this room have been exposed to the greatest message that has ever been. We know that we can find hope, that we can find forgiveness, that we can find redemption in Jesus Christ, and we know that God commands us to go and tell other people about it. And I think that some of, one of the best ways to get started is not by trying to go off into different places, but really starting and building relationships with the people who are closest to us geographically, the people who God has placed in our lives seemingly at random, but we know with God nothing's random. And think about what an incredible thing it would be if all of us took the time to get to know our neighbors and through relationship and through those different things we're able to share with them the incredible news of who Jesus is. Imagine the change that we would see in our communities. Imagine the change that we would see in the world. I think it'd be an incredible thing. Next week, uh, I don't want to steal any thunder, but next week we're going to talk about really some practical ways that we can begin to do that. But I would encourage all of us today, um, search our hearts, pray, earnestly ask God, um, how can I begin to share your good news? How can I begin to share the incredible love that you have shown us to my neighbors? I'm just going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll wrap it up for today. Father, we thank you so much for allowing us to gather here as a community and learn more about you and about your love and about your grace. And I pray that today we would not leave feeling condemned, that we would not leave feeling like uh, we can't accomplish anything, but that we would leave uh, really feeling inspired, having you show us areas where we have fallen short, but not in a way that says that we can't possibly pick it up, but in a way that says we can do it. I pray that as we reflect on the gospel, as we reflect on your truth, and as we reflect on the love and forgiveness and grace that you have shown all of us, that we wouldn't allow that message to just terminate in our hearts, but that we would want to share it with those who are closest to us. I pray that if we're scared of making relationship with people, that you would give us courage. I pray that you would give us wisdom. I pray that you would give us the words to say. And I pray that you would give us hearts that are prepared to build relationship with others and to show your incredible love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Snohomish Sermon Podcast. If you want to keep up with us, like us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit our website at grove.church.